Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Well, what an iconic message that was. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and it is my pleasure to host the Emerge Australia podcast series in which we speak to people impacted by and associated with MECFS and long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present, emerging and anyone listening today. I wonder if we can imagine a world where there is no greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man, Maybe a world without discrimination or stigma, a world where the voices of those suffering invisibly are listened to, seen and heard. Imagine all the people. Today to talk to us about her journey is Emerge Australia Ambassador Tracy Spicer AM. Tracy is a multiple Walkley award-winning author, journalist, and broadcaster. She's, she has anchored national programs for ABC TV and radio, Network 10, and Sky News. Tracy is one of the most sought-after on-stage and online keynote speakers and MCs in Australia, and we are thrilled to have you with us today, having just published your most recent book, man-made. Tracy, thank you for your time today. And thank you so much for your beautiful introduction to speak so evocatively of fairness and equity, but also the important issue of invisible illness. And I'm in awe of the warriors who have survived MECFS for years and years and years, and also the work of Emerge. So thank you. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you. Why don't we just start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and why you care so much about those with MECFS and, of course, long COVID. I've been a journalist for about 35 years now, and we are in an era where we need to have critical thinking around everything at this time in history. I first became aware of MECFS through two cousins, actually, one on each side of my family, who had uh, what used to be called chronic fatigue for nine years when they were young women. And they went from being incredibly active, busy, vibrant people who worked and exercised and loved and had families and, you know, close friends and connections, very, very busy lives to really being uh, bedridden for a long time, unable to do what they used to be able to do and were really lost about how to manage it. My own personal experience started when I developed long COVID about 
a year and a half ago after a particularly nasty bout of COVID of the Delta variant. And as soon as I started feeling the manifestations of long COVID, it reminded me of what my cousins had been through all those years ago, that your body simply won't do what it used to be able to do. And if you try to get out of bed or walk or even do any form of exercise, you are absolutely knocked flat. So that's what developed my own personal interest in this area, both as a journalist, having read about it, but those family experiences too. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, it certainly makes a huge difference when you've experienced it in your family and then all of a sudden you you find that you're experiencing the same thing. It's just and then you see what's happening in the community. It it really it really helps to identify with what people are going through. So, Tracy, what are some of the challenges that you've witnessed? both personally and, you know, observed in society um, since your diagnosis? A lot of the challenges initially are physical because you don't really know what's happening to you. At the start of my long COVID experience, I had unexplained chest pain, which of course is terrifying. You think you're having a heart attack every day, heart palpitations, Uh, problems with the digestive system. You know, your body just doesn't seem to be able to work properly. Uh, It went through every single organ in my body. I had uh, kidney problems, uh, brain inflammation. They they talk about the expression brain fog, but of course it's much, much worse than that. It's almost like a brain injury, like a concussion, where your executive function simply isn't working as well as it used to. And then, of course, there was the dysautonomia, which often accompanies a lot of people's experiences of any CFS, where when you stand up for too long, you feel dizzy or nauseous, your body just doesn't cope being in the vertical position for for too long. So the initial challenge was getting a diagnosis and going to a lot of different specialists who often didn't communicate with each other. So you couldn't get an overall picture of what was happening with your body. Then there was what we know more broadly socially as um, medical misogyny, where where you'd go and, and tell a specialist or a GP about your symptoms and they'd come back and say something like, oh, look, you're probably just a bit tired or depressed, implying that it's all in your head and you're just being hysterical, little lady. And that's infuriating because with MECFS, we only have a certain amount of spoonfuls of energy every day. And if you're using some of those spoons, getting to a medical appointment only to be dismissed and disbelieved, it eats up those precious spoonfuls of energy and it's infuriating. You then start to question yourself, gosh, am I, you know, exaggerating these things? You know deep in your heart you're not, but because the societal disbelief and pushback is so big, it's very, very hard to get past that. So I do want to thank from the bottom of my heart people who've had MECFS for years, for decades, for half a lifetime, who've been rattling the cage and screaming from the rooftops using their precious energy to tell people, particularly in the medical profession, that this is real. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's such a challenge. It goes back to that comment about, you know, the song Imagine and, and you know, imagine a world without discrimination, without stigma, without people being told it's all in your mind, it's not real. Um, the the challenges that this community has faced and continues to face um, is just incredible and and, you know, everybody that is fighting this horrible disease, you know, is a warrior. You know, people have to keep advocating, keep keep um, trying to have their voices heard. It, it, it zaps the energy of someone who doesn't have MECFS, let alone someone who does. So, Tracy, you know, on the back of that, can you share with us if there was a, a threshold moment for you when you decided you'd step up and, and be an advocate for people with MECFS and long COVID? Yes, and that threshold moment came after hearing the stories of people who'd suffered for years, particularly on social media uh, and on the Australian long COVID Facebook community, because there are a lot of people there who had long COVID, but also a lot of people who'd had MECFS in the past and understood that it was a very, very similar thing. And I know MECFS can be developed from a lot of different experiences. For me, it was post-virally. But the, when I read people's different stories, it made me realise that we needed to raise the profile of this even more because it's a terrible thing, but it's also an opportunity where there are so many more people suffering it now, an opportunity to raise the profile in front of people in government and in medical research to put more money towards it. And if there's one thing that we can do as survivors of long COVID, it's to help get more research money for MECFS. So finally, hopefully, in the coming years, we can get some kind of cure because it's heartbreaking to think about people who can't drag themselves out of bed of a morning and have to cobble together the treatments themselves, whether it's health supplements or medical treatments or pacing and resting. It's like um, people have had to create their own cures and that's terribly, terribly unfair when you don't even have the cognitive ability to think, gosh, I have to drag myself out of bed and maybe cut up some vegetables to steam them for lunch. You know, even feeding yourself is difficult, let alone thinking about a cure. So I wanted to use this as an opportunity to put the pressure back on the medical profession and governments to say, hang on, it's about time that you did something about this invisible illness because you can't say it's invisible anymore. Long COVID has given it extra visibility. Yeah, that's without a doubt, totally agree with you. And um, I, I recall um, recently we were on a panel together and you gave that wonderful example of your own experience um, having to cut up vegetables and you, you gave a, a very good demonstration of, of, you know, how you needed to um, improvise in order to do yeah you know, basic things in your kitchen um, to cut up vegetables or prepare a meal. And uh, I don't think that those of us who don't have MECFS or long COVID 
fully understand the the impact um, on the daily life of people who do. So um, maybe you'd like to share that little experience with us because I just thought that it was a great example of, you know, just an everyday tasks that task that becomes a huge issue. Yes. Look, I also acknowledge my privilege here in that um, I have a husband and two older teenage children who have been doing everything for the last year and a half, um, pretty much housework, cooking, caring for me, uh, while I try to cobble together a little bit of work as well as generally just being on the couch or in bed or in the wheelchair. So I'm fortunate to have help around the house it's much harder for people who live alone and also for younger people. I've got friends who have teenagers with long COVID who've now been diagnosed with dysautonomia and ME-CFS who are trying to do year 11 and 12. And the schools don't understand, you know. It's taken my friends really going into the principal's uh, for on, on a regular basis and saying, look, my child has a chronic illness. They simply can't drag themselves to school and be expected to get through the curriculum. So fortunately, schools are starting to understand more and allowing the teenagers to study from home. But even then, they have to do these crazy workarounds to be able to get through the day. And one of my workarounds was, you know, I had... Um, mast cell activation syndrome as well as part of it. So I was on a low histamine diet and low inflammatory diet as well, which basically just meant eating a lot of particular types of vegetables that I had to steam throughout the day and be very careful about what I added to them. A very simple diet, but even cutting up vegetables is difficult. It takes a lot of energy. You've got to stand up. You've got to expend energy to actually get through the vegetables, you've got to put them in the pan and then put them in the oven. And that sounds like a simple thing for most people. But when you have very little energy, if I, I found that if I did that for lunch one day, I simply couldn't do anything else in the day. That was all. That was my one activity for the day, aside from getting to and from the toilet. And at that stage, I was actually only showering once a week, uh, sitting on a a shower chair because I didn't have the energy to shower anymore. So the simple things take a lot of time. What I found was much easier was lying down on the couch with a couple of cushions behind me, having the chopping board on my knees and the knife there and the vegetables next to me in a bowl. And I just slowly throughout a period of about an hour and a half, chopped the vegetables on my lap while I was lying on the couch. And that actually saved me a lot of energy. So it sounds like a strange thing to do, but sometimes those simple workarounds mean that you've got extra energy to be able to maybe shower twice a week instead of once a week. It's the little things, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So a different kind of question. If you were Prime Minister for a day, what would you do? Oh, so many things. <laughs> In a perfect world, I'd wave my magic wand as Prime Minister and get rid of inequity globally and nationally as, as an overall umbrella statement. But, of course, that's not possible. That's uh, That's magic. But in this kind of area, if I was Prime Minister, I would put a whole bunch of money towards research and treatments for invisible illnesses 
including MECFS, but even more broadly to the related conditions. Because what I've learned is there's a whole lot of conditions that are related to this that are predominantly experienced by women and we still don't know why. So it would be incredible to get research into what connects these illnesses, why they're predominantly experienced by people who are female and what we can do to treat them. Because it's not just a feel good thing. It's not just compassionate. It's not just, wouldn't this be nice? You know, these issues impact productivity. In the past year and a half, I've been able to work only at five to 10% of my capacity, like so many people with MECFS. And if we can get these people healthy again and happier and having fulfilled lives, doing what they love, that's also good for the economy because it improves productivity. Also because it predominantly impacts women, it reduces women's participation in the workforce by not identifying these invisible illnesses and giving people treatments. So this kind of initiative would not only be feel good, it would be great for the country as well. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. Ever thought of running for parliament? <laughs> and I should ask you the same question. No, <laughs> politics is not my jam at all. No. I'm rattling the cage from the outside. But you should. You're incredibly eloquent about this issue and you've got great insights. <laughs> oh, thank you. I wasn't going down that track, but thank <laughs> you for your confidence in me. So how do you believe we can bring hope to our listeners who are enduring this disease. It's just so tough. And and what I've found, I'm a newbie here. I've only been in this area of medicine for two years. And the, the frustration that patients experience with this disease that is born out of a lack of understanding, being invisible, uh, making being made to feel that they just don't matter is is enormous. And so it, it is difficult to understand what it is that we can all do to bring hope um, and um, help make life just a little bit easier, especially for those who are bed-bound or housebound. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's immensely frustrating and my heart goes out to people who've been, who've been you know, predominantly uh, stuck in their beds for decades. You know, this is just, it's inhumane is what it is. Uh, it's absolutely devastating. When we talk about hope, one thing that does give us hope is knowing that we're not, not alone. And this is where joining together in communities, whether it's the Emerge community or a Facebook community or a different group of sufferers together, whether it's friends or acquaintances who experience this, whether it's even connecting with people on social media, honestly, that's what's really filled my cup because you understand that you're not the only person going through it and being able to communicate with someone who understands, it's like a light bulb moment. Oh my goodness, this happens to you too. And you can share those crazy stories because it's important to keep our, you know, our senses of humor. That's one of the most difficult things because it's a, like a living death and you feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel that you're going to feel like this forever. I know that people have different experiences and have the illness for different lengths of time, but please know if you're listening to this that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. 
whether it's one year or two years or five years or nine years in the cases of my cousins, there is an end to this and it does incrementally get better. It goes in that direction. It just takes a bloody awfully long period of time. But stick with it. Keep using the strategies. The resting and pacing is absolutely priceless. That has been the one great educative piece for me that I learned through fellow sufferers and through Emerge, that it really does work. It's bloody hard to do and it's immensely infuriating on some days, but it does help and it certainly works. So stick with it. Know you're not alone. And the step on from hope is how to create change. And we do that through having conversations, whether they're privately or publicly. Conversations are exhausting for us. They use a lot of our spoons, but they do create change in the end. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the issues around MECFS and long COVID is that apart from the, the comment you raised about living death, that people become very isolated, you know, because mm. they lose the ability to do the things that they could do before the social interaction dies down. And so you can become extremely isolated and, um, you know, that then can lead you to feel very sad as if there isn't any hope. And I think that the opportunity for people to talk to each other on social media and and learn of what others' experiences are and support each other is something that whilst it may not bring hope of, of a cure or things getting better, what it does is, is help to share the load and um, help to understand that you're not alone. And, and I think that is incredibly protective um, uh, of health um, in terms of, of being able to have someone that you can talk to about it who really understands what you're going through. So I think that's a really critical point. Um, and, and our listeners uh, are very active on social media. Not all of them are, but some of them are. And they write in to us and, of course, talk to our nurses on our telehealth service as well. Um, so those listeners whose voices we're trying to raise in the halls of power, is there something from your own recovery that you believe may inspire hope for them? And and how do we raise the voices from your perspective in the halls of power so that our members of parliament and our health ministers actually take note? Storytelling is everything. We saw that through, for example, the debate for marriage equality when people started telling their stories and when politicians realised that they knew someone within their circle, whether it was their group of family or friends, that was experiencing this particular issue that was being spoken about more widely in society. So as a, as a lifelong journalist and understanding um, the power of communication when it comes to influence, you can never underestimate telling your story and how that reverberates. You'll tell one person, they'll tell someone else, they'll tell someone else, and it will reach the ears of a person in power who can change things. What I would say is 
when you're telling your story, look, you've got to tell it in a a way that protects you as well, that you have boundaries on it. Only share what you feel comfortable sharing. Share it in a short way rather than a longer way so you don't use up too much spoons. Sometimes when we share our stories, it can be re-traumatizing. So only do it when you feel strong enough to share your story in a safe and supported environment. It's a really tricky balance. You've got to protect your mental health as well through this whole process. Um, It's such an uh, important message, yeah. People need to be supported. And look, if we share our stories in a collective way as a group, then that's supported as well because we can debrief after and say, okay, how did you feel? Are you okay? You know, are you going to rest up now? Please don't feel any more pressure to tell your story. Uh, I know when long COVID exploded into the public consciousness, there was a lot of pressure for for uh, many of us to tell our stories and we sort of took turns you know we'd say oh look I'm just feeling too tired today someone else got the energy to do it because you don't want to feel like you have to throw yourself out there and be the person who changes the world and tells their story when you simply don't have the energy the most important thing is you and your health so look after that first oh what good advice Tracy so final question what do you think the future holds for those with ME-CFS and long COVID? I'm optimistic for the future of people with ME-CFS and long COVID. There is an enormous number of people around the world suffering these invisible illnesses. And because of the pandemic, they're no longer invisible. There is more money that's being put towards research and potential treatments and cures. So, I see a bright future and I think we will look back on this time in history and the many years where people with ME-CFS were dismissed as suffering from some kind of yuppie flu. Remember that narrative in the 80s and 90s? Just appalling. Absolutely. We'll look back with shame and horror on that time in history and think, goodness me, didn't we have a medieval appalling attitude to this terrible debilitating illness that was impacting so many people, particularly women. So I always lean on that quote by the great Martin Luther King Jr. that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How beautiful. What a wonderful note to end on. Tracy Spicer, Ambassador for Emerge Australia, thank you for your time and for your willingness to share your personal views and experiences. We so appreciate having you as our first Emerge Australia podcast guest. So thank you. Well, my deep thanks and gratitude to the MECFS warriors and thank you, Anne, and thank you, Emerge, for all of your work. Oh, that's a pleasure. So today is the very first in a series of podcasts with people of influence and those whose voices need to be heard. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with ME-CFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. Tune in again for our next interview and don't forget for more information and to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter, visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Thank you, Tracy, and bye for now. You may say that I'm a dreamer 
Someday you'll join